triumph. Secondly, his eyes are a flame of fire. Now we remember this characterization from the resurrected Jesus in chapter one. It means he sees into us with a penetrating gaze. Nothing is hidden from him. And he will judge fairly because he knows us fully. And he knows not only what we do, but why we do what we do. Number three, on his head are many diadems. Now diadems just means crowns. Again, remember, this is figurative language. The symbolic language is, is te- language is telling us something about the nature, the true nature of Jesus. How is this significant? It shows his universal authority. Look at Revelation 12, verse 3, for contrast. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now this dragon represents Satan, and he is seeking to seize universal reign and pretends that he possesses it. And the dragon gives power to the beast. And the beast captures the way that Satan influences and works through earthly authorities to accomplish his purpose. Look at Revelation 13 verse 1 about the beast. For he too is wearing crowns. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Do you see the contrast? Jesus has an unnumbered, undefined amount of crowns on his head, showing at once that the power of the beast and the dragon is limited, while his is infinitely greater. Sam Storms quotes the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper about Jesus' authority, saying, there is not a square inch in all the universe over which he does not say, mine. Fourthly, Jesus is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this seems grotesque to us and certainly challenges our 21st century sensibilities. What does it mean? Now again, it's good to keep in mind that the book of Revelation, as we said early on, it adopted a common literary device of the ancient world, apocalyptic literature. It was not strange in its own time with respect to literary genre. Apocalyptic literature is full of exotic imagery and symbolism. But we also must keep in mind that in this literature, in the Bible, behind the bizarre images and symbols is something real. So is this the blood of martyrs who look for for vindication from Jesus? Is it the blood, metaphorically, of the enemies of the church that Christ defeats? in the final cosmic battle. Verse 15 says he will tread the winepress of the fury of his wrath of God Almighty, the wrath of God Almighty. Or is it his own blood since he appears as a lamb who has been slain? Well, I think that is the answer. Though the images of Jesus are multiple in the book of Revelation, which is why we must understand them figuratively, the lamb is a dominant theme and picture His shed blood is the basis for his authority to open the seals and to bring about God's kingdom on the earth. 
And finally, the last image, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. We must see this in context. Christ and his church come against the beast. Those aligned with the beast are those who are persecuting and undermining the church. Jesus is wielding a sharp sword for a great battle. Now, for those of you who have carefully observed history, you recognize that it is not impossible for there to be a time when the spirit of Antichrist, supported by governmental entities and other powerful influences, will take a final stand against Jesus and those loyal to him. Now, obviously, commentators struggle and disagree with what this will look like. And we must be so humble because of our limited understanding. But in my opinion, I take this not to be a physical war with tanks and guns and soldiers and so forth, but a cosmic spiritual struggle where Antichrist seeks to bring an ultimate death blow to Jesus and his church. Now, friends, we have certainly seen the possibility of this through history, as well as in our lifetime in many, many countries where the government takes an uber-aggressive approach to stamp out the Christian faith. I've traveled to countries like this. One of our former members lived for years in a country like this in the Middle East, attending an underground church. I believe the battle to be spiritual for one reason, Jesus brings a spiritual weapon to the battle. The sword is his word. His spoken word. And just one word spoken in a single moment of time will win the victory. This is his appearance at his coming. This is the way Jesus is described to us. What he looks like. Let's go now to the second part of our outline. The names of Jesus. Number one, he is called faithful and true. Jesus is always trustworthy. Secondly, he's called the Word of God. This harkens back to what John said of Jesus in the opening of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God, meaning that through his words and deeds, the character of the Father is revealed to us. You know, through much of my Christian life, I really did not grasp this. Jesus as the word of God. I found that for whatever reason, I had this tendency with this book to over-intellectualize it. I let the Bible address my intellect and the big questions of life, but in a way that did not move my heart or draw me closer to Jesus. Even my naming of him in prayer revealed this distance. I called him God, but rarely Father. Perhaps it was the misguided perception that the main purpose of this book was to communicate rules. It is, after all, called a law. But when I heard the word of law to describe the Bible, or had others characterize the Bible in a legalistic or a depersonalized way, 
I mentally divorced the words of the Bible from the actual thought and emotions of God. I could read the words of Jesus and understand them intellectually, but could not envision Jesus saying them to me in a way that reordered my heart or moved me emotionally. I could listen to the Bible being taught, but I would box it in, seeing it primarily as a moral code for my own improvement. You know, I liken this way of reading the Bible or hearing it to a window. Um, all of our windows are closed this morning, sorry about that. A window exists to let in light, right? And for you to see the outside world. And it would be crazy if you stared only at the pane of the window, but never looked outside. You see, the Bible exists not as an end of itself, but rather to draw us, to connect us, to show us the texture of a close relationship with God, our Father. Like panes in a window, the Bible lets in the light of God's love and allows us to see his beauty. But for me, I kept gazing at the panes. Oh, there's some nice panes. Straight, evenly cut, nicely painted, comprised of strong wood. But how much I was missing by not seeing the overarching purpose of the Bible. You know, in this mode, the Bible, uh, in this mode, the Bible was beneficial in providing order in my life, but it left me relationally distant. Dallas Willard helped me in this. Through his book, Hearing God, I learned to recognize first the spiritual force and power of words. Words are not just vacant. Words are just not empty. Jesus said the, the words in chapter, John chapter 6, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Dallas Willard said this based on that text. This means that through his words, Jesus imparted himself and in some measure conferred on those who received his words the power of God's sovereign rule. You see, the spiritual force and power of words is true, even writ small, so to speak, in our human relationships, is it not? Is it not? Words have power. And through words, we impart ourselves, our hearts. Again, words are just not empty symbols. We impart our hearts, our emotions, our deepest thoughts. Is this not critical to the success of any relationship? Is it not? You see, through the Bible, God the Father does give us commands, but he also gives us himself his heart, his emotions, his inner thoughts. He imparts to us through his words that his love is effusive, enthusiastic, expressive, and ever-present. There is power in these words, not only to move the intellect, but to move our affections in such a way that we become close to him. So like the disciples, by faith we can say, we have heard his voice. We have seen him with our eyes. We have felt his touch on our skin. John gives Jesus this name. He is the word of God. He is the deepest expression of the love of the Father. 
The other night, Louise and I watched another episode of The Chosen about the life of Jesus. It was so good. My goodness, it was so good. And I was so filled up from watching it, sensing and feeling closeness to him and his love. And we went to bed as soon as it was over. Now, typically when we go to bed, Louise and I read the scriptures together before falling asleep. And the thought of Jesus as the word of God came to my mind in a new way. And I said to Louise, I don't think I need the devotional tonight, for I already feel immersed in the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. Let's look at a third name. A name written that no one knows but himself. Now this name emphasizes Jesus' sovereignty. And it is said by some that this name points to the mystery of his person that finite minds can never fully grasp. Dennis Johnson points out that in the ancient world, to know someone's name was an implement of power. In other words, it gave you leverage. And he cites the patriarch Jacob, whom you might recall wrestled all night with an angel. And Jacob is mildly rebuked when he asks for the name of this mysterious divine opponent, a name he has never given. And I can safely say that divine wrestler was neither Hulk Hogan nor The Undertaker, right? A fourth name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This name shows Jesus' extreme supremacy over all other rulers. No king nor their leader can compare with him nor defeat him. He is coming for his people. And he is coming as a strong and righteous judge. And its placement here, connected to the same title in an earlier chapter, indicates the final war is about to take place. Faithful and true. The word of God, a name written that no one knows but himself, and King of kings and Lord of lords, the names of Jesus. Let's go now to the final point in our outline, his companions. Verse 15, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Jesus has companions. Who are they? Are they angels or human beings? Well, a pretty strong argument can be made for either. And there are many different opinions on this. I believe they are glorified human beings because of what they are wearing. They are wearing fine linen. They are dressed in white. These are the same descriptions when used in other places of revel in Revelation to describe conquering saints. I believe they are those who have conquered and have won the victory by the perseverance of their faith, which is a constant echo, right, in the letter to the churches. They are Jesus' companions. And therefore, this cosmic conflict is not only between Satan and the drag, or between Christ and his church and Satan and the beast. It involves allies. Here's what Dennis Johnson said about this. He says, rather each God, Christ, Satan and the beast, each stands in a community. And the destiny of each community rests with the success and failure of its champions. Sort of like David and Goliath. When the dragon cannot get at the woman's child, he goes after the rest of her children. When the beast and its allies gather for the war to end, our war, end all wars, their intended victims are the lamb and 
his comrade in arms, the called, the chosen, the faithful ones who are in his army. Yet just as Christ's white horse promises his certain victory, so the white horses of the riders who follow him assure the church that his triumph will be ours as well. So we have his appearance, we have his names, we have his companions. And this all sets the stage for the final or for the battle described in the rest of the chapter. Again, whether you believe it's final or not depends on your point of view. But it is the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. Now, at the end of chapter 20, it tells the defeat of death in Hades. Again, for some, this means the same battle in chapter 19, but described from a different vantage point. And for others, it means the final conflict after the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So how does all this change us? Does it really change us at all? Is this just all something for the future that has no bearing in anything in our present? How does it change us today? Let me offer three things here. Number one, hope in Christ's return enables us to live like Jesus. Hope in Christ's return enables us to live like Jesus. You might ask, you might be thinking, how can this picture of Jesus as judge, Jesus as a divine warrior, leading his saints into cosmic conflict, you're not going to win many converts in America with that picture of Jesus. How can you reconcile that kind of Jesus with the spirit of tolerance that pervades in our age. Surely this gospel of strict justice will repel. I mean, what people want is a God that is totally non-coercive. You know, the early Christians who read this letter for the first time, they were experiencing or were about to experience terrible evil and injustices. Things that most of us, I trust, have never experienced and frankly hope we never will. And in response to these attackers, Jesus called them to respond as he did, refusing to retaliate, loving and praying for those who brought them harm, refusing vengeance. Miroslav Volf, a theologian from Croatia, who saw the Croatian people suffer at the hands of Serbian aggressors, concluded that only confidence in God's power to bring about justice would enable people to respond to such injustice with nonviolent grace. Thinking of the contrast of living in a war zone versus the quiet of a suburb, Wolf wrote this. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis or the belief that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that belief will invariably die. What is he saying? What he means is this, that only in a lifestyle removed from any kind of visible evil or injustice, only in that lifestyle will make a person believe 
that people would not take vengeance into their own hands when pushed hard enough. Only a naive view of the world would cause one to desire a God who refused to bring justice. Well, what about us today in the historical moment that we find ourselves in right now? How does hope in Christ help us to be enable us to live as he did? What do we do? What do we do as believers when we don't know if verdicts have been just? When justice hangs in the balance, when communities or families wait on pins and needles for the conclusion of cases. You know, in these situations, Christians, Christ followers have an anchor to steady our responses, knowing the King of kings and the Lord of lords is returning with strength and justice. Anxious Cases and outcomes have been a plenty of late, testing our nation, right? There are those cases that are layered with racial tension. The verdict of Kyle Rittenhouse or the execution stay of Julius Jones in Oklahoma or the upcoming verdict in the killing of Ahmed Arbery. There are those anxious cases and outcomes involving religious freedom and the cause of the unborn. The Supreme Court will review in this next year a case from Mississippi. And when reviewed by the Supreme Court, this will bring a great test to our nation. Knowing the King of kings and Lord of lords is returning with strength and justice will anchor and steady our responses. It will give us the power to respond as Jesus did with nonviolent grace, whatever the outcomes. Friends, I expect this clear vision of Jesus' return and our need for it to only increase as the years move forward. You see, hope in the return of Jesus is extremely relevant. Second thing. Second thing on how this changes us, and that is that we all face a judgment. Heaven is not a birthright. We all face judgment. Heaven is not a birthright. I, I don't relish giving this message, but here it is. It is the word of God. It is the words given by Jesus. They are not my words. Look at Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. This is what's called the great white throne judgment. The end of history. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Going to heaven is viewed by most in our culture as a birthright. Something that happens to you by virtue of being an American and not committing some really terrible sin like Hitler did. Of course, we choose a mythical comparison that makes us stand out in comparison like we are worthy of sainthood. And the philosophy for most Americans goes something like this. As long as I attain middle-class respectability and pay my taxes and keep my nose clean and stay out of trouble, there is no possible way God will keep me out. I deserve it. God, for his part, is a kind, elderly gentleman, partially blind and hard of hearing, somewhat senile, and could care less about the shadow side of my life. I'll slide into heaven without a ticket because God is only love and acceptance and can forgive the few accidental things that I said or did through my life. Friends, I just am begging you. I'm begging you. If you believe this book, I'm just begging you to realize that is not how it works. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is a standard of perfect humanity by which we will be judged. And with that comparison, guess what? We all fall short. We all need a savior. You see, the great white throne will reveal the secrets of our heart and expose us as undeserving to live in the kingdom Jesus has established. We need to embrace Jesus, friends. Each one of us needs to embrace Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords to be saved. We have no birthright to heaven. We must embrace him actively and consciously as a decision of our will. And I would urge you today, if you've never done that, to embrace him today. Enter his kingdom today. And then finally, the last application of this. And we'll share this and then we'll take communion in a moment. I'll have Nick and Kim come back up. But let's look at this last application is I'm trying to prove to you that hope in Christ, hope in his return makes a difference today. Christians have a remarkable hope. It's not a wish. It's not a wish like, I hope the Browns turn things around this year and win the Super Bowl. It's not a wish like, I hope I win the lottery. No. Hope in the return of Jesus is a solid hope that rewires the entire way you see your future. In the Middle Ages, the sea route to India seemed an impossibility. It was often discussed in the great economic and political centers of Europe. They used to wonder whether there would be a route around the bottom tip of Africa to that rich land of the spices. Many had tried and all had failed. The tip of Africa had become known as the Cape of Storms. Then an explorer called Vasco da Gama decided he was going to try one more time. 
and he succeeded. And ever since he returned to Lisbon, it could never be doubted again that it could be done. He proved that to use that treacherous way wasn't inevitably disastrous. So the Cape of Storms eventually became known as, guess what? Those of you that have heard of it, the Cape of Good Hope. And that's the rest of the story. <laughs> Nick, come on up. Nick and Kip, come on up. Now, the point of the story is this. See, that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what Jesus has done to death. This King of Kings, this Lord of Lords, this one who is as if a, a, a lamb appearing as a lamb slain in blood. Jesus has done that for death. The treacherous route that no one else could could navigate. The treacherous route has been transformed. Jesus suffered and went through death and he rose victorious. And that means that his people follow and likewise the storms of death hold no fear for us for he has conquered. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that Jesus, thank you that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus brings to us a clarity to be able to look at your face, Father, and know who you are. We express our love to you this morning. We're grateful for your word. And fathers, we sing and take communion now. May your May the healing power of the Spirit come over this room. And where we need salvation, where ones need healing, where one's souls need restoration, where relationships are broken, where conflicts are storming, where issues remain unresolved, where circumstances are overwhelming, Father, now let us as we've heard your word and as we respond to the word of God, may we enter into a closeness and nearness with Jesus. Maybe for the first time this morning. Maybe some of us are returning this morning. Maybe some of us are simply filled with gratitude for what Christ has done. Father, may your Holy Spirit come as we take these elements that mean so much. They are sacred to us, the bread and the juice, reminding us of your body and your blood. Jesus told us to remember him through the bread and through the cup. How long? Until he comes. Let's go ahead and take the bread.
bread representing his body, sacrificed for us. Now let's take the cup representing the new covenant, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. If you love this what I'm searching 
president of the United States from 1853 through 1857. And as you know, during that era of time, it was just the beginning of train use and traveling by train. And uh, before his inauguration, uh, he and his wife and his son, Benny, I think around nine or Benjamin, around nine or 10 years old, were traveling by train. Again, early days, not uh, just things not very safe. The train rolled off the tracks. And one person was killed, and it was Franklin Pierce's son, Benjamin. And not only that, but he was virtually decapitated, and right in front of their eyes. When Franklin Pierce was there for his inauguration, he would not put his hand on the Bible. Not because he was upset with God, but because he assumed that what happened to him was because God was angry with him for past sins. I wonder if some of you this morning are laboring in life under that same spirit of condemnation. Something you've done, something done to you, and you've made the jump in your mind, you've made the assumption, God's angry with me. I can't, I can't read his Bible. I can't look him in the face. The whole beauty of Jesus' ministry in the new covenant is that he comes to bring life to those who feel condemned. 
to those who are laboring under a sense of condemnation. Through Christ, he takes it away. I wonder if that's a word from Jesus this morning for some of you. And I wonder if he wants to speak to you in that and heal you spiritually or emotionally. I'll be here after the service. You know, the church doesn't end, so to speak. The ministry time continues because the presence of the Holy Spirit is here with us. And he lives inside of you that are believers. And so now ministry time continues. You might come up front for prayer. Maybe you're struggling with condemnation. Maybe you've never embraced Jesus as King of Kings. I'll be here. Some others will be here. We would be so honored to pray for you. But others of you might turn to one another, sharing a scripture that you read this week, praying together, asking generally, how are you doing? What's happening in your life? This is a ministry time because we're the gathered church here. And so let's continue in that vein. We'll close here our formal gathering with a benediction. The book of Revelation Chapter 22, John returns to this first person and he says, what does he say? Come, Lord Jesus, even so come. And then finishes with the familiar benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Go, go in peace. Walk it out.